0: The Guru. Find out more at BAFTA.org forward slash (laughs) guru. Hello, I'm Rihanna Dillon. Welcome to this first of three special editions of The Guru, recorded in front of a live audience at BAFTA's headquarters in Piccadilly. It's all part of Guru Live, a three day festival of talks and discussions about the creative industries for those wanting to be inspired and move on in their careers. Today, we're taking you through how to make a game from start to finish, featuring seven of the hottest creatives in the UK. They'll be attempting to sum up their craft in just seven minutes. Seven minutes to explain exactly how to be as good as them. We'll hear how to set up a studio, how to write a game, tips on virtual reality and level design, performance capture and audio. Ambitious? Possibly. Foolhardy, Definitely. Your host for this episode is Kate Gray. Uh,
1: So first of all, all, we have Jana Karlikova with a talk on tips for new studios. Now, Jana ran the Stugan Dev Accelerator in Sweden last year. She was the project manager. Uh, Stugan is a non-profit initiative for young game developers, and it's designed to accelerate careers with a commitment to diversity. It's a two month residency for individuals or teams for up to three. So if you're
2: interested, ask Yana. So hi, thank you Keith for the introduction. Uh, my micro talk today is going to talk about uh, giving tips to new studios, zero. It's a number discovered by the Babylonians and uh, it's a mathematically very interesting number. Uh, It's a common runtime error if you try to divide by this number. And uh, it also happens to be the number of the studios that I have started. (laughs) If you don't count the studio that I have started and have run quite successfully in this uh, fantastic game. So who am I to stand here today and give you advice on how to start a new studio? My name is Jana and I've been running a Swedish games accelerator called Stugan. Stugan means the cabin in Swedish and uh, we are bringing together developers from all over the world and having them work on their games in the middle of the Swedish uh, forest for, for the summer. And uh, having run Stugan has given me the option the, the possibility to meet some of the great developers uh, in the world and also people who have started and uh, have successfully run uh, smaller or bigger game studios. Um, Companies like Dice, Rovio, Mojang. These people come to Stugan as mentors and advisors. So my advice today is based on my experience that I have gained from uh, setting up and running Stugan and also from having dialogues with these successful entrepreneurs and from trying to help our teams to, pro, uh, to make uh, progress in their projects. So first of all, when you're trying to set up a games company, it's very important to think about the business aspect. Many developers don't like to think about this. They, they say that they're developers and uh, not entrepreneurs. But it's very important to be at least a little bit entrepreneurial. Or if you really don't feel like doing it, then make sure that you bring into the team somebody who can help you with that. It's important uh, to think about the, the business model and the monetization early on. Often I play games that people are working on and I ask them, how are you going to monetize this game? And they say, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it yet. And uh, I think it's very important to actually think about this early on and decide if you're going to make a free-to-play or a premium game and then continue developing the game accordingly. If you really don't feel like uh, dealing with the business, then an alternative would be to go to an incubator and accelerator. There is many programs across the world that focus on games, and uh, they can help you help you out with these things. Incubators are not for everybody, but if it is for, for you, it could be a great fit and you can get a lot out of it. One thing that we're trying to prove with Stugan is that the location is not important, actually. You have to think globally and uh, you can make a great game regardless where you are. Basically, you just need to have a computer, an internet, and you can make a great uh, game anywhere where you are. We are bringing our developers in the forest and they, they make a great game there. So. One, uh, one thing that I would like to uh, talk about is this transition that we have uh, witnessed uh, in the few past, uh, past few years. So, before, a few years ago, when you, ne- when you wanted to play a game, you physically need to go to a shop and buy a copy and go home and install it on your computer. But nowadays, you don't have to do that. You, can, you basically don't need to leave your living room and you can get uh, any game that you like. So, this comes with... Uh, a new marketing strategy. Before, everybody would have to have a publisher, and the games would physically need to be shipped to different parts of the world to distribute it to, to those countries. Nowadays, you don't have to deal with this problem anymore. So, having a marketing strategy can cost a lot of money, but uh, I would recommend to focus on uh, building uh, your uh, press strategy. So. Having a good PR doesn't necessarily need to cost a lot of money. A lot of developers think that they don't really want to bother with this because it would uh, take a lot of money from their budget, but uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be that case. What you have to do is, make a great story, try to reach out to journalists, build a relationship with them, uh, try to be active on the social media and uh, get as many followers as you you can. And uh, this is a rather uh, big topic, I don't want to go much deep into this, but I would recommend to find uh, a PR person who works full time with that and uh, try to book a meeting or two and get an advice from them. Because that could really help uh, the game. One other thing that I think is, uh, is important is to, to get out there. Don't just sit in your office and uh, leave, uh, leave your computer and uh, try to go to as many events as you, as you can. Confer- conferences, uh, different uh, meetups and uh, meet developers like yourself and also people who have more experience than you. And uh, get uh, inspired by them and uh, get motivated and get uh, some advice. It's important to uh, go to game jams. It's rather popular between the Indies as well. There you get to work on a new project for a day or two, and uh, that gives you a new perspective, and you can create a new project that potentially can become something bigger. One example is a goat simulator, which is a great game, a Swedish game, that came out of a, of a game jam, actually. And uh, last but not least, uh, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and uh, show your game to to people while you're working on it. And uh, this can be scary, but it could be very beneficial. You get uh, feedback, and uh, and you can make a great progress with your game. So. Last, I would like to say that I believe that the indies are the rock stars of the 21st century. Um, Back in the 60s, people were trying to be like Beatles. They were their heroes and uh, they were playing in their garages and trying to to make a band like Beatles. Today, people are sitting home trying to make next uh, Minecraft or Candy Crush. So, thank you. I wish you good luck and uh, thank you.
1: Next we have Oliver Hollis-Like who is a mocap actor and stunt performer with an impressive CV. He's worked on games like Forza Horizon, Quantum Break and Halo. He's played Iron Man, Spider-Man and James Bond and he also founded the Mocap Vaults in 2014. The Mocap Vaults aim to raise the standards of performance in video games and movies working across Europe and the USA to find help and train actors as well as working with devs. Basically, we're never going to be James Bond. He's the only James Bond we'll ever meet, so. (laughs) His talk is on writing for games.
3: It's a a very strange introduction to a talk on writing, but that's me. (laughs) Yes, I've done a lot of performance capture over the years, but uh, for the last four years, I've worked as a writer for Sabre Interactive, a developer in Russia that made Halo Anniversary, uh, Halo 2 Anniversary for the Master Chief Collection, um, but also some other games, um, and so I'm going to talk to you a bit about that. A story is essentially a journey. It involves a character. Something happens to that character that sends them out on that journey. Uh, they have an objective, and they face obstacles along the way. That's a simple story. It can be very simple. It could be as simple as a penguin who's lost its friends and is trying to get back to them and facing the challenges of the Antarctic. That is, that is a story. In fact, even Flappy Birds has a story, which is why it's not a cube moving through little columns. It's actually a bird trying to find his way home, I guess. Um, What are we trying to do with the story? We're trying to create an emotional response from the audience and to create empathy for the characters in our story. Why? Because if they have emotion and empathy, they'll become attached to that story and they'll want to keep playing and tell all their friends about it. Remember that the player has their own story as well. More and more games are becoming very, very much interactive experiences. And you have to remember that the player has their own experience and will have their own part in that story. And each player will have a different experience of that story, so make sure you leave a bit of room for them to do that. Why is story important? Well, it's not just window dressing for a clever gameplay mechanic. You may feel that you've got a kind of gameplay that no one has ever done before, and it's going to be amazing. But without story, it just becomes a series of button pushes. What you need is a reason for players to want to go on beyond that gameplay mechanic. It creates audience attachment, which is essentially what I said about wanting to keep playing and wanting to tell your friends about it. If you think about the number of zombie games that have come out, and the one that everybody seems to remember is The Last of Us. Why? Because it's not just a game about shooting zombies. It's the story of a father and his daughter's uh, journey through that zombie world. Also, it defines your game from all the others. So you know, if you have an interesting story along with your gameplay mechanic, then you're going to have a much more memorable experience. More than words, try not to have too much exposition and dialogue heavy scenes in your, in your game. Try and use other features of the medium. It's a visual medium, an interactive medium. So shift away out of the dialogue, try not to have too much exposition, and put that into the environment itself. Great examples of this are something like The Division, an amazing game, fantastic story, but you learn what's happened to this city by moving through the environment. And uh, a great point that was uh, added this morning by John Dower, thank you, John, is collaboration with other people in the team. You may be the writer, but as, you know, with all games development, you work as part of a team. So make use of all these people you've got, these creative people. You may come up with a great idea, but you've got to run it past your team to find out whether it's actually possible to do it with the budget and with the facilities they've got. But also they have great ideas, animators coders and audio people, they're all going to have their own way of saying, we know how we could help to tell the story. So work with your team. I said about using environment, you can also use NPCs. You know, uh, Again, the Division or Homefront 2, you walk through that environment and you you overhear conversations, little pieces of things. You might even overhear a TV that's on in a room that you pass through, you, know, you look through the window, and that's another little piece of the story that you didn't have to include in dialogue. Um, and that creates a much more immersive experience rather than just Two characters telling each other what's happened. Um, character design as well. You know, if you've got a character that doesn't look hungry, then the, you know the audience aren't going to believe that it's a city that's lost all hope. You need to have characters that fit the fit the tale. Um, and change. Homefront 2 works very well in that as you move through the game, you're playing a resistance fighter. The more successful you are, the more the civilians in the city. Join your cause. They start to spray graffiti on the city. They start to uh, smash up cars and start fires, throw stones at the occupying force. So if you can add that element of change as the story progresses, that's a very effective technique. Also, if you are going to write dialogue, act it out. Dialogue is a, a form of spoken word. And if it only ever exists on the page, you'll never know if it's truly effective. So get people uh, that you work with or friends, act out your dialogue, and find out whether it stinks or not. because. A year into the production is too late to be changing dialogue. Interactivity. It doesn't have to be an incredibly expensive and difficult process. Uh, Simple choices can make a huge difference, Um, albeit a complicated game. I remember in Bioshock, when you find those little girls and they have the syringes, and you have a choice whether to keep that uh, syringe and give yourself extra powers at the expense of this little girl, or whether to give her the syringe and relieve her from her pain. It's a simple choice that doesn't have huge consequences, but as a player, it makes a difference. It defines your experience of the game. Um, Consequence, a fantastic game. If, I don't know if anyone's played This War of Mine. It's an incredibly simple indie game, amazing experience, incredibly depressing to play, but very fulfilling. Um, you know, Your decisions have life or death consequences on the characters that you play with, and it really feels like you're losing someone when you lose them. It's a, mainly a text and visual-based game, but those consequences matter. Variation. Try not to have every choice the same. It kind of speaks for itself, but, but do try and get as much variety in there as you can. Um, and you'll find your scripts, which don't look anything like film or TV scripts by the time you're finished, look like a mix of between a, a dramatic script and, a, and a, a C++ code. I find myself, um, I've worked on huge uh, games for the developer I'm with. Um, and you find these scripts that become a 1,000 pages long. And it's like, uh, if the player does this, then this character says this. If the player does this, then the character says this. If the player doesn't do this, then go to line 365. And it can get very, very confusing. We figured out a way that works for us to to kind of um, do that script, but you'll have to find your own way that works for your project. Non-linear. Non-linear is is what it's all about now, uh, trying to make it feel... As so though your experience is unique. So you need to make sure that you maintain the core story. As the player goes out, like in Fallout, goes out into the world and has their own experiences, you need to make sure that they're all branches of the same tree, that those little mini stories, however complex, are still rooted in what's actually happening in that universe. Um, those little experiences can add new layers of depth to the script, to the, to the game. They don't have to be particularly com- uh, complicated. It can be two NPCs having a conversation down an alleyway and it can reveal a lot. Um, Project scale can be vastly increased. I worked on Until Dawn as a performer and for every choice that you have, they had to have two separate performances. And you have that here and then here and then here and then here and you've got this incredible branching uh, storyline that comes off and it can get very expensive. So make sure if you are gonna do that, that it's worth it, that it has the impact that you want and that you can afford to follow it through. Uh, and finally, writing in a video game is a continual process. Uh, changes will be made throughout the development and get used to it. You know, you'll be, I, I worked on a game for two years and the developer decided to change the main character from uh, an older male to a younger female. And suddenly all of the backstory goes out the window. You have to change all the conversations you've had. You look through your thousand page script to try and find all these little nuances you put in there carefully and then remove them. Um, so you have to be prepared to to lose those nuances. You've just got to let them go. There just isn't um, this the. There isn't the time to just keep pushing and holding on to ideas. Move with the project. Be creative and always be prepared to accept changes because they're going to happen. When you've got a big publisher who's telling you you've got to do something, it's going to get done. At Quantum Break. They changed the lead actor three times. Um, Script format, I've told you about before. Uh, Make sure the changes are easier to track. So this is really important about the kind of administrative side of it. Uh, At Sable, we use Google Drive so that we have a document. The script document is open to all at any time. If there's a change made, everyone gets notified of it. You can leave comments in there, and all of the people relevant to that comment will be informed. Um, You can highlight things when you change them. It's a very, very flexible piece of software, and it was invaluable to us when you've got 100 people working on the same project. Um, And communication. If you are gonna make a change, make sure everyone knows about it because you don't want someone designing a building in a certain way and spending a month of their life doing it only to find out that it's not necessary anymore. So that's it for me. Thank you for your time.
1: Next, we have Daniel Fountain who is a programmer and puzzle designer currently working at State of Play, who, if you have heard of them or if you haven't, they've made Kami and the BAFTA-winning Lumino City. He's going to be talking about level design.
4: I'm Dan Fountain. I worked on these these games, Kami and Inks, which is being released on Thursday, um, are primarily puzzle games and as is Lumino City. So I want to talk to you about how we can make our puzzle games better. Um, So, I think it's a great idea for us to look at board games for this because they contain a variety of different rules. They have lots of different mechanics and we can really learn from them. So, um, once or twice when I was a child, um, my family would play snakes and ladders. And I was really good at snakes and ladders, or so I thought. I mean, coming back to it as an adult, I've noticed a serious problem with it. It's all just luck. You don't make any decisions while you play. Knowing that fact makes a game incredibly boring. You advance by rolling a dice. Oh, I hit a snake. Well, that's one in six. Oh, I climbed a ladder. Well, that's a statistically probable event. It's chance. Call me cynical, but it's so boring. Maybe, in conclusion, we could say, decision-making is what's satisfying. But what of chance? What if we completely remove chance? Well, that must work, right? Well, if we completely remove chance, we run the risk of our games being too boring. Noughts and Crosses is an interesting example. It's actually possible to memorize every single move. Every game becomes the same and boring without chance. Imagine if we took a game like Risk and completely removed all of the dice rules. Suddenly, we know the outcome of every single fight before it happens. There are loads of stalemates and dead ends. If someone discovers the best tactic, it will always be the best tactic. Maybe just like Noughts and Crosses, the person who starts in the middle will always win. But in a normal game of Risk, People come back despite the odds. People will take a leap of faith or gamble on an unlikely battle. And that's what makes risk interesting. So maybe chance is drama. When used responsibly, maybe chance can actually create drama in our game. There's an inherent risk in every decision. A game like poker, for example, is entirely based on risk and chance. It's what makes it fun. Poker isn't as random as the snakes and ladders. There are enough decisions to manage your risk. So maybe there's a balance here. But maybe some of you are thinking, what about chess? Chess is a game with no dice rules, but huge complexity. Did you know that the Olympic Committee actually considered chess to be a sport? Chess is a really strange sport, because at its heart, it's pure logic. There's no subtlety of movement or technique. It's just pure tactic with everything else stripped away. Now, I think this complexity is due to something I like to call emergence. Chess creates this uh, rare feat that we always talk about, where it's easy to learn and hard to master. I know exactly what the rules are for chess. I know where every piece should go and what all the objectives are. But I'm terrible at chess. I have no idea how to actually play. It's unlike Norse and Fross, I can't remember every single move. Chess has thousands of do's and don'ts. These do's and don'ts aren't the rules, they're separate from the rules, but they're created by the rules. It's said that they are emergent complexity. They emerge from the otherwise simple rules, and this is what makes it easier to get into chess. (laughs) It's true for most games, um, chess is just really interesting because people literally dedicate their lives to writing books about tactics. So let's define emergence as small rules having effects on a bigger scale. We can use this to make better computer games, but we can actually take it further than board games are able to. In a board game, every action is executed by the player. If you're playing a game like Solitaire, The player needs to stack cards up in a very specific placement every time. Computers are literally designed to automate these repetitive tasks for us, so let's use that. Here is our game Kami. The aim of the game is to change the color of each area and eventually fill the whole screen with the same color. But there are 160 colored cards that all flip over, depending on the color next to them. Now, we could turn this into a board game, but every move would take several minutes. Each game would take half an hour. Now, Kami, again, uses simple rules so it's easy to understand, just like a board game. But it does hundreds of calculations. A much more extreme example of this is potentially Minecraft. It has simple rules of how things interact with other things. But if you allow a computer to simulate thousands of interactions, people can literally go on incredible adventures in the world of an emergent story. Physics games like Limbo, for example, also create emergent puzzles from complex physics simulations. What I mean by that is, like chess, the puzzles emerge from the frame-by-frame iterations, if you like, of the simple rules. I think the one thing this does that board games can't do is create an autonomy. The player is literally responding back and forth with the game, and it feels like an autonomous thing that's responding. This gives it charm, maybe. One thing that computer games can fall into a trap, however, is that we might be tempted to put very complex logic in there because we have this computer brain which is doing all the calculations for us. Now, we need to avoid giving the player really overwhelmingly complex rules. Fortunately, computer games can actually trump board games in this way. We can teach better than board games can teach. Some board games have a very interesting way of telling us the rules. This is monopoly. (laughs) not very user-friendly, maybe. Um, So let's take another example of a game, which is also really hard to understand, pinball. Now, pinball tables are covered in lights and text and complex mechanisms. That's because there's only one table to serve everybody. It needs to serve the experts. There's no table for beginners. That's not a viable business. They're very complex to make. The answer is gradients. Uh, State of play, we're coming out with a new game called Inks. And when we made Inks, we asked the question, what if we had hundreds of pinball tables with ever-increasing complexity? Well, the first table could just be a single target, you could learn to hit. The next table could be divided in half, you could learn to aim. Eventually, we might include a ramp and you could navigate on rails. Then you could add a second flipper, you could learn to link shots together and get to new places. As a puzzle designer, suddenly this becomes exciting. We can't have hundreds of pinball tables in real life. They're very expensive and big, but computer games can do this. So hopefully my uh, rapid seven-minute talk has given you a brief insight into how I design puzzles. These are some of the hints I've collected, and thank you very much.
1: Next up, we have Rob Morgan, a talented and experienced game writer who worked on the VR game, The Assembly. Rob's also a narrative designer and a voice director who works with studios, charities, (coughs) publishers, and indies to help design digital narratives and world. He's worked on games like 80 Days, Fallen London, and Sunless Sea, and he's going to be talking about storytelling in VR.
5: All right, hello. My name is Robert Morgan, and I'm a game writer and a narrative designer, whatever that is. And I wanted to talk about story and narrative in VR, how it works, and how we can best take advantage of VR to create narratives that start feeling like they're actually native to a virtual reality setting. So I worked as a consultant for VR projects and I've written and designed narratives for the three major headsets plus the Gear VR and for live action and 360 filming. And that's basically been a process of falling into a series of potholes, making a whole load of mistakes all at once. And I also talk a lot about VR in settings like this, which is a process of trying to identify the potholes after I fell into them and trying to warn people about them so that people don't necessarily make the same mistakes that I did when they're developing their VR experiences and the thing is VR is a relatively young medium it's only really in the current iteration been around for a couple of years which isn't very long even in technology years although it is quite a long time in pothole years for the purposes of the podcast this is a news report about a guy who threw a two-year birthday party for a pothole on his road to try and encourage the city he lived in to fix it and it actually worked the fact is We're still working out by a mix of academic study and trial and error and gut instinct how to tell stories in VR and there are going to be some embarrassing potholes that stick around in our understanding of how to tell stories in that medium and they're going to be around for some time because often we can't even put our finger on a problem in the way narrative works in a new medium until someone comes along with an elegant solution but that's always been how art works. How to make narratives that feel VR native, that answer the promise of VR and that take best advantage of the medium, instead of just treating it like a gimmick, that's the challenge. So consider this a seven minute celebration of the potholes that I've fallen into and I've hauled myself part way out of. Hopefully it's useful. So number one, immersion isn't realism. Now this is important, and it's really, really vital to recognize that photorealism isn't the be-all and end-all for VR. Some of my favorite experiences I've ever seen in VR, instead of putting the user into somewhere that looks as real as possible, instead are about putting people into otherworldly dreamscapes. But there's more to it than this, because actually, realism isn't really realism. Actually, realism in the games industry is often used as a shorthand for better graphics and for more empowering effects, for more superpowers. If an enemy can take hundreds of bullets to the face, it's often critiqued as a piece of unrealism. But the fact that you can carry two shotguns and another two in your rucksack, that generally is called acceptable unrealism because it's cool. If we look at many of the things that are considered realistic in flat screen games but transpose them into VR, they end up not looking very realistic at all. In an average modern shooter, for example, a medium which we tend to consider to be a typical video games experience, your ground speed is about 9 meters per second without dashing. And that's a speed that most humans don't move at except at a dead run. You jump far too high, you rotate too fast, and you move backwards without hesitating, which runs the risk of walking into potholes. All of this stuff actually feels weird when you transpose it into VR, and it starts to feel even nauseating. And all of that stuff, all of the bonkers physics, all of the high ground speed, it emerged not because that's what games are, but because much of the industry was competing to hold the attention of users on a screen which was over there on the other side of the living room. And that's simply not an issue we have in VR anymore. There will probably be players who get used to deathmatch in VR. They get acclimated to it. But it'll probably be a smaller niche than it is now. And in the meantime, VR is actually giving rise to a whole new demand for slower, more contemplative, more thoughtful experiences with high detail environments that you're meant to look at before you blow them up, if you even do at all. Pothole number two, have an answer to this question. Have an answer for when the player asks, who am I? So the live action experience is something that's really going to sell VR. There will be an opportunity to have a globe camera set at the front of the stage here so that you, everyone can connect online and be in the best seat in the house for a Beyonce concert. That is a clear... Uh, user case that is a clear opportunity which sells itself. But even then, even in a spectator situation, I think you need to be able to answer the question, who am I? Who is the user in this system? And that's because the revolutionary thing for VR, about VR for me, is not what you can see, but who you can be. Because when you enter VR, it's not just a case of showing you new things and putting you in front of kind of putting things directly into your eyes, you're also radically present in the scene in a way that you're not in a flat screen game. You're radically embodied. And so VR is an opportunity to, to give the audience something that they haven't seen before, to put them in a perspective that they haven't seen before, to allow them to be somebody that they never thought that they could be. And Because VR is not spectation, no matter what you're seeing, you need to understand your relationship with what the user is going to see in a way that you don't in other media. But, and this is pothole number three, I'm a role player. And players are generally much better role players than we give them credit for. Giving players the opportunity to be someone, to embody someone that they didn't expect, to be somebody new in a game, that's really, really powerful. But it doesn't mean that you have to deliver a really detailed dossier about their character, to tell them exactly what their motives are. Because being radically present in the scene means players actually bring a lot of themselves with them into your simulation when you make a VR experience. And that means that you have to leave a bit of ambiguity because different players just sympathize with different things. Different players will want to play things in different ways. But you still have to let players retain a sense of agency and ownership over their actions. Motivations in flat screen games tend to be very broad, so much so that there's a pretty reliable formula for how motivations in most flat screen games work. But in VR, this isn't just poor narrative design. This is an immersion problem. Because trying to impose too much on the player, trying to tell the player why they're doing everything, detaches them from engagement. It makes them feel like they're just going through the motions. You can't separate VR and interactivity. And if if you're a VR developer, but you're trying to act like the player isn't there, and just tell the story you want to tell, pretty Soon you'll find that the player isn't there because they lose interest if you don't allow them to retain some ownership over their motivations. Instead you can use implication, not just in the sense of just implying things, that's really important because understatement is incredibly important in game storytelling, but also implication in the way that you get implicated in a murder. Instead of telling your players who their character is, what their motivation is, why exactly they're doing exactly everything that they're doing. Give them just enough information that they're involved without having to know everything. Give them a secret to keep. Or tell them to just try to act normal. That's the stuff that implicates the user. Make it so that it's too late. The player is already involved. Before they even know who they are, before you deliver all of the exposition, before you do world building, grab the player by making them already involved, giving them a secret to keep, giving them something private that only they know. Tell them to just act normal and they'll be role-playing before you even tell them who they are or before they even realize it. Number four, stage don't shoot. So I see a lot of live action scripts for 360 live action Uh, VR experiences and they're often written in the way that you write a cinematic script They'll go this happens this happens this happens and then we see and that's the point where I have to go no wait Stop stop there because we don't see you can't guarantee that the player will see anything that you want them to in VR You can't conduct or direct or edit their perspective All you can do is create a scene and then allow them to navigate it and interpret it in the way that they want. You might crash a helicopter in a really spectacular fashion in front of a VR player, but there is no guarantee that they won't be just looking the other way. And that puts us in the business of curation, not narration. It means that level design and story design are even closer together than ever before. But it also means that another of my real loves, the theater, is actually very relevant to VR. Because where level design meets story design, that's set design. Which is why you have to stage these stories, not just shoot them. In my opinion, games are too conceptually beholden to cinema anyway. In VR, people talk about how you lose the ability to do the cutscene because you can't take camera control away from the player. You can't just cut to the helicopter crashing. You have to let the player choose to look at it. And people talk about the loss of the cutscene as though it's a tool that we're losing, but I think it's a compromise that we no longer have to make. And besides, luckily for us, Theater gives us wonderful examples of the medium which don't try to control where the user is looking, and instead just set out a story for them to digest and interpret that story in their own way. That's relevant for theater, whether that's Hamilton, but it also exists in games. Go back to Half-Life. It never takes camera control away from you. All the storytelling is done by overhearing and implication. It doesn't stress if you're not looking in the right direction. It just arranges things so that you probably are, because there's always something interesting happening. It's basically a VR game. Just remember, if you take nothing else away from today, remember that that loss of camera control, the surrender of narrative control to the user, is a fundamental quality of VR. You can either fight it, or you can embrace it. that brings me to my final pothole. The last mistake is to focus on visual immersion, on fidelity, on seeing, and in doing so, fail to create emotional immersion. Because immersion isn't the same as distraction. You can't distract people into being immersed. We're a long way from being able to simulate virtual environments, and especially virtual people, that are convincing 100% of the time. And that's fine, because if you're a VR developer, I don't think you're in the business of tricking the user into thinking they're somewhere else. I don't think that's the point. I think you're in the business of creating somewhere else that players are interested in going to. Users will always, always be able to see the strings if they want to. The trick is to make them want to believe the strings aren't there, or make them so interested and so engaged that they stop caring about the strings. Which again means going back to theater, because suspension of disbelief, willing suspension of disbelief, the thing that theater runs on, that isn't going away. Because your simulations have to be intriguing and engaging as well as visually spectacular. And you do this by giving the user someone interesting to be, even if that's themselves. You do it by laying the story out for them to discover and own instead of just telling it to them. And you do it by letting them bring a little bit of themselves into the sim, so that they can come out of it feeling a little bit responsible for what happened. Because just like theater, VR isn't a broadcast media. It's not something that you deliver to users. It's a pact. It's a relationship with users. And that means telling stories with humanness in the middle. Because suspension of disbelief, this thing that theater runs on, Coleridge, the poet, coined that term. But he coined it to explain how he could get away with writing stories about fantastical elements like goblins and ghouls that at the time were really unfashionable. But he argued that providing that a story has sufficient human interest and a semblance of truth, the user will be engaged enough to suspend their disbelief, even if the story is full of ostensibly unlikely, improbable elements. As long as the story is sufficiently human, we don't focus on the unreality. We focus on what's human within it. Games have no shortage of the fantastical. But in VR, more than ever, we need human stories at the center of our experiences. Or you run the risk of breaking immersion through disinterest, through lack of engagement. And ultimately, when you break immersion, what happens is the player is reminded that they're sitting on their own in their living room wearing a plastic helmet. Because immersion is a pact with the user. And like all pacts, it's hard to build and easy to break. That's where I want to leave it. Thank you very much.
1: Our next talk is by Jessica Saunders, a sound designer who worked on games like Batman, Arkham Asylum, Fable Heroes, and Kinect Sports Rivals. She's going to be giving a talk about game audio.
6: Hello, game audio is something that is vitally important and it's something that many developers and many filmmakers overlook until the last minute. Um, for many examples, I've had many phone calls in my career from directors and video games saying, seen your showreel, found you on LinkedIn, we'd love to hire you, we have to two weeks to do this entire game, two weeks to do this entire film, we're gonna pay you hundred pounds, can you do it? And you have to very much turn around and say no. Um, with films and with games audio is so vitally important you have to start thinking about it from the beginning it's something that should be at your forethought from the very set go Um, audio is what gives your production life it's what brings a sense of realism to it, it's what really creates the mood and allows you to be part of the game and the film that you watch Um, we go through extreme lengths to get what we, what, where we are today. we, The work that sound designers put into these games and these films that you watch and that you play is something that's not often thought about. Um, I did a talk earlier today with um, Adam Hay talking about his sound design work on The Rapture, um, and that was really interesting to see another sound designer's point of view because we're such a small niche of people, we all tend to know each other, so I know Adam very well, and to hear him Talk about his work and just explaining the amount of depth that went into a uh, appearingly very simple game. You know, you're walking around an English village, how much audio can it be? And when you actually sit and talk about the depths that he goes through to get this incredible sound, it really hits you and it makes sense of why he is a BAFTA winning sound designer. Um, for example, on Arkham Night, we would go through um, extreme pain and fear and um, blood, sweat, and tears to get the audio done on this game. We have gone out in the middle of the night to record. We have worked till 1 a.m. editing files to make sure they are clean as possible. We find bugs and we fix them, which no one would in their right mind really notice, but we know it's there and it's all these little things that add up and become part of the overall process and the overall experience of the audio. I do think when especially you're starting up, um, I think a lot of people here are like breaking into games, breaking or want to break into film, and are talking about setting up studios and doing games from scratch. And I I find an often point is you need to start thinking about the audio now. And the audio does cover everything from your ambience to your music to your dialogue. As they were saying, as some of the people here were talking about earlier, you know, when you have your script, you need to read out. You need to get a placeholder recording down as soon as possible with a performance that's roughly the right kind of timing that you think you'll have, because otherwise it'll throw all your animations off. It throws your cutscenes off. Things like this that people don't often think about and can really ruin a production later on. You have to allow space for audio, whether it's an animation of a ball bouncing. If the ball bounces at the wrong speed and it's just a little bit too fast, a little bit too slow, your audio won't work, timings won't fit, and especially if you're trying to match everything to music. A piece of advice that I was given um, whilst I was at uni is something that's really stuck with me. Um, As a developer, whether you're a game maker, a filmmaker, TV, advertising, anything, the two things that will set your production apart from everyone is your lighting and your audio. If you get those two things down, you will look like you have a professional outfit, no matter how low budget, how much you don't know what you're doing. If you get good lighting and you get good audio, so much is forgiven. It really is, and that's something that's vitally important. Um, this is something I'm also looking at at the moment because I have started up my own games company. Um, I have a very strong history in development. I have worked for Codemasters, Lionhead, Rare, Rocksteady, Supermassive, and Splash Damage. And I last year, I won Breakthrough Brit um, for BAFTA. And it's been such an incredible career, and I've been so lucky to be where i am today and to be able to be in a position where i can speak to people like you and put forward essentially my own agenda for audio in the fact that we do need to think about it and we do need to process it and we do need to bring it to the forefront and understand that audio is the one thing that touches nearly every aspect of the game like as i said i'm currently um the director of my own studio, and the one skill that I've found has been my audio sound design skills has actually been vital to the game development process. So I am currently creating um, an adventure game, and I'm finding it very easy to map out, to work out what's needed. You know, I've got a, su- a solid business plan. I know who we need to hire and when. I know um, how to set up a business. I know how to work out what's going to be needed where. And I owe all of that to my career in audio. Because audio does touch everything. As an audio designer, you will speak to the UI artist, you'll speak to the cinematic artist, you'll speak to the coders, the script writers, the designers, the heads of the studio. You are literally involved with everything. We are that quiet little person that sits in the corner, sits in a booth somewhere at the other end of the office, who touches upon everything. So we know what's going on. If you want to find out what's going on in the studio, nine times out of ten, speak to an audio person because we know what's going on. And it is those skills that allow me to be a better developer. Um, And I think that's one of the most important things for games development is communication. So I'm sitting here saying, pay attention to audio, pay attention to me. Um, But what I also mean by that is you need to pay attention to every department. It's wonderful having people speak, say, yes, talk about script and think about script in this depth, think about level design in this depth, think about coding in this depth, but every single one of those is part of a jigsaw puzzle. Development is very important that it is a team effort. You need to work closely and you need to understand what everybody does. Even if you don't understand the nitty-gritty of how Maya works or ZBrush works or anything like that, you need to understand what that person does and how that person's work fits into the giant jigsaw puzzle. Because if you get that information down, if you know what each of you are doing, even in the most broadest sense, you will work better together, communication will be better, and you'll end up having a better project. So this does mean that you have a little bit of sympathy when your audio designers say, we need to go to a zoo today and record some chimpanzees, and they come back with no information. Or it means you have a bit of sympathy when designers want to go out and look at artwork and spend a day doing something that just seems totally unrelated, where in fact it could be completely related. Just because you don't understand a discipline doesn't mean it should be ignored or left till the last minute. How am I doing for time?
1: Uh, you've got about 40 seconds.
6: 40 seconds. <laughs> so yes, um, I know this talk has been a bit of a ramble, and I do um, apologize because I have come terribly, terribly unprepared. But um, what I hope to get across is the importance of unnecessary disciplines that you potentially may overlook and just how important they can be overall. And how game development and film and everything, it's teamwork. And that is the most important piece of information I can give to anyone who wants to work in the industry or is thinking about working in the industry. It's find out what your colleagues do. Find out how a game is made, and for God's sake, before you go off and make a game, work out how a game is developed. Learn what times they come in, learn times learn how a game is put together, what pitfalls you're likely to come across, how each discipline interacts with every other discipline, because without that knowledge, you will probably not make a very good game. Thank you.
1: Our next talk is by Dave Ranyard. He's an independent VR developer, formerly from Sony London, and he was a huge part of PlayStation VR, his recent demos include The Deep, The London Heist, and The Getaway, and he's going to be talking about reinventing the controller.
7: Hello. Um, so, I've made games for 17 years. I worked at Sony for 17 years. And I ended up, the last three years, I was running their London studio, uh, but made tons of different games from The Getaway, SingStar, iToy, WonderBook. And then the last three years, we've been making VR games. With traditional games, you use this to control the characters. So I just want to ask, raise your hand, if you've played a first- or third-person video game using a controller like this. OK, so most people know what the control scheme is. Basically, this stick, you move forwards and backwards, and that moves you around. And this one moves around the camera. And this is designed, actually, there was a time before consoles were really big when people used to use a mouse and a keyboard to control things, right? I don't know how many people have played PC games where you control like that, right? And in 2000, around that time, everybody thought that it wouldn't work on one of these. right? So I think it was really PlayStation that was the first console that had first-person shooter games on them. Prior to that, it was all PC gamers with mouse and keyboard. And people would say, oh, it'll never work, it'll never work. But anyway, they kind of worked out this control scheme that does work. And since then, there's been about 500 million disks sold using this as a controller, right? Great. So the last three years we've been making VR stuff. So the first thing you do is, oh great, we've got a controller. Let's have a go with that in VR. And what I want to talk about is the fact that it doesn't work, right? So I'm going to do a demo now. So this is probably less than seven minutes, actually, this talk. But anyway, it's kind of funny. So Will here, good friend Will, who's put all, put a lot of stuff work uh, work into today. Hello. Hello. He's going to he's going <laughs> to control me, as if I'm the character. I'm a first person character. In in the world, and hopefully you'll see why I don't think it works for virtual reality.
8: Okay. Right. So So I've uh, got the controller in my hand. I'm just gonna. Oh. (laughs) Imagine I've got a gun. bring your own gun to BAFTA? (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I'm gonna push the left stick forward. Okay. So. And I'm gonna pull the left stick back. And. So one of the points
7: is in first-person games, you go really fast. You go faster than Usain
8: Bolt, uh, because that made the game more exciting, so that's why I was running. Faster than Usain Bolt. Faster than Usain Bolt. <laughs> so I guess I'll try moving the left stick to the left. And then you do this thing called strafing. To the right. Which is, you just glide sideways like this. I'll just move <laughs> him back to the centre. <laughs> um, I'll try diagonally forward to the right. Okay, I'm going to bang into And uh, <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> and quickly diagonally forward to the left, in case oh. anyone's ah. got this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now I'll have a go at just kind of moving the right stick in a circle. <laughs> and I think I've demonstrated all the abilities of yep. this hardware. Yep. There okay. you go. So, that's a little demo. <laughs>
7: <clears throat> and then people say, so why don't you get motion sickness in virtual reality? It's because that's what we've been doing to people. I mean, that's not the only reason, there's other stuff as well. But actually, When you look at it in that context, you realize that this has been designed to solve problems that we're not trying to solve anymore. It's been designed to solve problems where you're a character on a screen like however many feet away with all this other stuff around. And it kind of works for that, but it doesn't work when you get the full immersion of virtual reality. Uh, What does work in virtual reality is one-to-one interactions. So rather than having one of these, having some things that give you hands in the VR world is much more satisfying and much more one-to-one and then therefore much more immersive. So that's kind of the end of my little rant talk. But, um, yeah, I do think these are really cool, these controllers, but they're just (laughs) not necessarily... I've got one, or I haven't got it here, I've got one picture which I showed in the talk earlier. It's an old Model T Ford motor car with a horse in front of it, right? As in pulling the car. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Like, the controller is the horse and VR is the car. And I think, you know, the the horse will disappear and the VR will take over. Anyway, thank you very much.
1: Our final talk today is by John Campbell, the technical director of Triangular Pixels. He has over 10 years of development experience on a variety of PlayStation hardware and VR devices, working at the bleeding edge of technology. He's going to be giving a talk called Triangular Pixels
9: so i'm going to give you a talk called tiny robotic clones how automatic tools can help you make better games with less stress Uh, my name is john campbell i'm technical director of microstudio called triangular pixels based in cornwall and we focus on vr content and vr games so what is automation automation you can think of as tiny dumb robotic clones of yourself you can use to automate the tedious and repetitive aspects of game development that you don't want to do yourself. and This means you could save yourself time, you can save yourself errors, and also detect errors quicker, and ultimately this gives you more confidence in the game that you're going to be making and the builds you produce in your game. So automation can be as simple or as complicated as you want, and often it's a good idea to start simple, and you can build your way up to the complexity that you need. Simple is usually the best way to get good bang-for-book as well. And to a certain extent, automation and tools that you can produce for your projects is very project-dependent. There are some things that are just good ideas, but usually you have to keep an eye out for the opportunities that work for your game and the things that work for your team. And to facilitate that, it's often a good idea to make yourself work in areas outside of your areas of experience. So I mostly focus on programming, but I make a point of occasionally doing some level design or something like that, or content creation. And that helps me see where the level designers and the content creators have repetitive areas that can be sped up by a simple tool that I can give them. Automation could come into several categories. You can have fully automatic automation, which is something based on a schedule or a trigger. Uh, It could be user-triggered, something where you just Trigger it by clicking a button, and then the whole thing can be just left to finish. Or you can have user driven automation where you provide a certain amount of input and the tool kind of asks you for minimal uh, additional data as you go through. Builds are often a good target for automation. Um, Fortunately, this is kind of fairly well covered in the literature because it applies outside of games as well. Ideally, you want to be able to go from a completely clean project uh, to a built executable and a built package with no user interaction. And if you can do that, you're doing pretty well. But then once you've got your package, once you've got your executable, often you want to submit that to uh, some sort of storefront, like Steam or PSN, which usually has a web front end to actually allow you to do that. This could be automated as well, which is usually a good idea because there are often lots of error-prone steps Uh, that you can hide away. Um, You want to look into tools like Selenium that you can effectively script a browser. (coughs) And when you're doing this, it's a really good idea to timestamp your builds. You can do an automated timestamp, have that timestamp in the file, but also have it in the game visible in, say, an options menu. And that will help you uh, when you get bugs come in from your beta testers, or your QA department, or just your users tell if that's still a valid bug or it's a bug that you've already addressed and already fixed. Once you've got your automated builds, a good thing in addition to that is just some basic sanity checks. Now, most source control systems has ways you can trigger uh, events when people check in. And you can use that to, on the build machine, trigger a complete recompile, which is particularly important if you're working in Engine, which is C or C++ base, and you want to catch a compiler as someone's checked in. Before the rest of the team notice it, uh, you can also build your entire game from scratch. Now, depending on the size of the game, this can take a varying amount of time. It's usually a good target for an overnight build. It's also very good at checking that you haven't got any assets that have not been checked in and just left on somebody's machine. Health monitoring is the kind of the category of checks to check that your game, like, how is it doing? Is it healthy or is it feeling bad at the moment? A boot check can be really simple. You just fire up the executor in an automated way and check if it gets the main menu. This seems really simple, but you can flush out a lot of errors and catch them a lot quicker with just something like this. A monkey tester is like the next step up. So this could be something like start the game and just pipe it random inputs. And you'll be surprised how many bugs can be uncovered with completely unstructured inputs. Soak test is kind of the next level of structured testing where you can make your game load up all the assets and all the content in your game sequentially. Uh, if you've got lots of menus, it's good to cycle through the menus. If you've got lots of levels, cycle through all the levels. This is really good for catching memory leaks and resource leaks. And if you leave that going overnight and your build's still cycling in the morning, then you're doing pretty good. And then finally, performance test can also be automated. It's particularly important for myself because VR is so performance sensitive. But you can script a camera path for a level and record both the frame rate and the memory usage as it goes through. And then you can save it, save it out to HTML, and then present that. And you can see, oh, level four is performing badly relative to everything else. Or you can see last night's build, suddenly the performance of all the levels went down or all went up. And then the final thing, which is more in the realm of user-triggered. Uh, automation. You can think of generating code, which is usually very good if you have something that has lots of tedious boilerplate, like menus, um, or asset generation. Um, For instance, in Smash It Plunder, we have a tool that lets us take a simple uh, 2D image with an alpha channel and then extrude that into 3D geometry, which is a much faster way of generating that kind of content rather than making it by hand uh, from polygons in a 3D modeler. Um, so thanks for listening. I hope that's given you some ideas.
1: So thanks to everyone for your talks. Thank you guys all for coming. If anyone does have any questions, um, we've got a microphone here.
0: Uh, this is for Daniel. Do you feel that sometimes giving hints to solutions like in Kami, I think you can use a light bulb to give hints on... Um, how to fold these colors and stuff. Do you think it just takes away from the charm of um, trying to solve it by yourself?
4: It, it can do, yeah. Um, it's kind of hints, like overt hints, are kind of there as a bit of a last resort for people. What I, The way I enjoy making puzzles is having a conversation with the player and thinking about what the conversation currently is. Um, so in Kami, there are some levels that are very complex, but the level before that is almost exactly the same level, but with one thing different and that makes it simple, and then they get to the next level after, and they're like, how do I do that in the same number of moves? But it's another area, there's a whole other complexity to it. I, I really enjoyed in that game tricking people and teaching them things, but then taking that away, or, or the next level looks similar again, but you solve it in a completely different way. In terms of simplicity, you can start wherever, as long as you're thinking about the conversation you're having with the player. You're, you're, you're literally dialoguing with them.
3: Okay, thanks. My question is for Daniel also, and it's a uh, it's a little bit on a technical side. So I mean, your games, um, both the games that you mentioned, Inks and Kami, look look quite stunning, like visually. Can you touch on a, on the kind of technologies or tools that have been used to, to create the games? Is it Unity or is it some other technology? Just to just to, to raise some awareness of that.
4: So I'm really passionate about not using technologies in ways people might expect them to be. Um, so we're very much coming from art comes first or feeling comes first, and like sound and things we think about at the start. Um, and Then the technology fit in. So, so Inks is actually our first ever Unity project, but it doesn't look anything like a Unity game. Mm. But what I have done is used things that Unity is good at, like shaders and graphics card things, to actually make the ink flow. So the ink flow is all essentially programmed on the graphics card. And so we're using the engine to get what it's best at. Lumino City is programmed in Flash. <laughs> and part of the reason we started with Flash is because it's just it's just good. It's just good at moving 2D photos around. And it's good <laughs> at playing videos and having our animation sync with those videos. And there might be better solutions now, but at the time, which was like what five years ago now, that's literally all we could find to do that. Well, the came first was the idea, and we we're, we're trying our best to hack the technology to, to do that. So use whatever, but the idea comes first.
1: I think we've got one down there.
4: Hello. Uh, my name's Quang. I um, a question for Jessica. So I wanted to ask, um, you, you, you mentioned going to the zoo to get sound effects uh, for, uh, for, for games. What are some, maybe some of the more interesting places you've acquired audio for?
6: Audio designers um, are thieves. We beg, <laughs> borrow, steal, and we get whatever sounds we can get our grubby little mitts on. A sound in the game is very, very rarely just a sound. It's something that will be very carefully layered up um, and actually result um, in maybe five to 60 sounds all playing at the same time to get that one perfect sound then and there. Um, So I've gone out and I've recorded chimpanzees, I've recorded water, I've recorded... Lightning storms. I've recorded um, one of the strangest things I had was I went back to my parents' house because my mother keeps chickens, and I dragged a chicken into the living room, and she became little Rose. She became the title card for um, Lionhead's Fable Heroes, uh, little jumping across the screen, and I got some brilliant photos of my poor mum like trying to get the chicken to behave because she was clicker training and it was just jumping all over the furniture in her head. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll do things like that. But then again, um, for example, most of um, Arkham Knight's um, UI sounds, because I did the entire UI suite for that, was um, sounds created with nothing organic at all. We li- I literally used Pro Tools, and that was it. I'd use um, a click and a reverb um, and just spat things out and then ran it through various processes and just cut it up and played with it and kept basically breaking the audio as much as I can um, could. And... The result was we got this really quite high-tech sack sounding UI. So it really depends on, on what's needed. But yeah, we use whatever we can get our mitts on. Any more questions?
7: Hello, I'm a glitch. I have a question to everybody. How much uh, time do you leave uh, per week for gaming?
6: It really depends what games are out at the time. Um, for example, um, I spent an obscene amount last year on Dragon Age Inquisition and Fallout Um, like an obscene amount but recently in the past couple weeks i haven't played anything um i'm just waiting for uncharted now because it's you i find it kind of ebbs and flows like even like when you're in like severe crunch and you've got things going on you just don't have time to play games like maybe you'll play a little game on your iphone on your commute but it really depends what kind of games out there for me
3: um, I put in a modest 40 hours in one week into Fallout 4 and then had to uh, back out due to life commitments and other individuals trying to communicate with me, but um, I, I also got kind of roped into the division recently and put in a lot of hours on that, um, but uh, again it becomes more and more difficult as an adult to, to put in that kind of playtime. Um, I, I Obviously, I don't have all the consoles and platforms as well, um, so I do some of my research by watching YouTube playthroughs uh, of games. You know, I worked on Quantum Break for five years and uh, I still haven't played it. I just watch videos on YouTube for now, so so that's me.
4: Um, so, on a good day, we'll play at work because uh, then we can talk about it and play it over lunch. On a bad day, when we're working too hard, I just need to have my own little time when I get home. So at least a couple of hours a day. I like to play games that I can't possibly make. So I I, I play games like Rocket League just because (laughs) it's completely different. Otherwise I start tearing games apart and thinking about them too much. That's not what you need. I kind of actively avoid long experiences except
5: when I know I can take like a holiday and do them. Like I haven't even picked up Fallout 4 yet because I know that's going to be a week. Whereas I'm booking a weekend out for when Uncharted comes out because that's going to be a great weekend. But other than that, unless you count time spent playing Drop 7 on the bus, which I still do, and which is the only game that I've gone back to like weekly for years, probably. Other than that, yeah, Division. But only once I'd got to the stage where I could just put in an hour a night, and that's kind of a social activity anyway. It's like I go there to meet people who I can't see otherwise, I guess.
2: I can't say how many hours per week I play, because it de- depends on uh, if I find a game that I'm very passionate about but I'm lucky that my fiance is also in the games industry so we often uh, instead of watching a movie in the evening we often play a game together so in the last week we ended up going to bed way too late because we found uh, this awesome indie game called Factorio and uh, we just spent a massive amount of time on that
1: I'm going to give you my answer even though I'm not a game developer Um, (laughs) sometimes we play games at lunch sometimes we have to and that's uh, fun, except when it's Dark Souls. Mostly I just play them uh, on, the, on the tube, which means I'm normally playing 3DS games I'm reviewing, which isn't very exciting because they're normally terrible. Um, so I don't, I don't really play games at home. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing people experience, that you do games all day and you go home and you're like, I don't want to see another game ever again. <laughs> Sometimes it's a bit like that. So yeah, uh, I think that's all the time we have. So thank you very much for coming uh, and thank you again to our speakers.
0: Thanks for listening to this special edition of The Guru, BAFTA's podcast series exploring the craft of making film, TV and games. Thanks must also go to event programmers Will Freeman and Kerry Rizzo. Cheers, guys. Subscribe now and never miss another episode. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and all podcatching apps. Until then, I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producer is Matt Hill. See ya.
7: The Guru.